This podcast is brought to you by Free Buddhist Audio, the Dharma for your life. Our work is funded entirely by donations from our generous listeners. If you would like to help us keep this free, make a contribution at freebuddhistaudio.com forward slash donate. Thank you and happy listening. Yes. Thank you, everybody. Thank you. Uh, I must say I really enjoyed my time in Sweden. Um, <coughs> Stockholm is it's like the ideal city, isn't it? Um, it's so quiet. It's so spacious. I don't know whether you, you experience it. <laughs> but uh, I come from Bethnal Green in the east end of London, and I can tell you it's quiet and spacious compared with that where I come from. And it was really lovely being in Dharmagiri, um, such a lovely retreat center. Um, the, build, you know, the buildings are beautiful, the landscape is beautiful. Um, I'm struggling a bit with the light. I mean, it's so light in the morning, isn't it? So I was you know, awake at six because you know, the sunlight seemed to say it's at least midday, you can't still be in bed. And I was having to convince my body, no, it's fine, it's actually six o'clock in the morning. But eventually I got up. Okay, so what I want to do tonight is I want to talk a bit about this question of where Buddhism begins, like I've already sort of initiated, and uh, where it begins, and and then I want to talk about four things we need to do, and um, that might be it, let's see. I want to talk about three things about the Buddha, four things we might do, that's what I thought. And then at the end, I'll leave some time if there's any questions. Yeah, I like questions. And sometimes that's where I learn most, is when people ask me questions. We have some very good questions on the retreat. Um, Often the the trick is not finding answers, but finding questions. Questions are much more difficult than answers. Genuine questions are are much more difficult. Answers are fairly easy, really, but um, it's it's good questions that are difficult to find. That's what philosophers do, isn't it? They they come up with questions. So, um, as I was saying at the start there, um, Buddhism starts, uh, the spiritual life, the journey as I call it in the book that I'm writing, starts in two places. It starts with our own mind just now, uh, with where we are just now, with our own mind. So it doesn't start with a belief, it doesn't start with a theory, it doesn't start with an interest in Buddhism uh, or an interest in spiritual life. It starts with uh, our own mind here and now. As soon as we start to notice our mind, um, as soon as we start to say to ourselves, oh dear, look, I'm getting stressed, or oh dear, I find it difficult being around people, and as soon as we start to notice our mind, we've started practicing Buddhism. Buddhism is all to do with your mind. Um, It's as if the Buddha is whispering to you all the time about you and your mind. He's not talking to the room. He's not trying to give you a social or political framework to live by. He's not trying to say how you should run a country or a state. What he's trying to do is he's trying to talk to you directly about the issues in your life, which are the issues of your mind. Um, When you come to think of it, uh, it's incredible um, that we spent so little time on our mind, looking at our mind. Um, 
It's amazing. We learn all sorts of weird and wonderful things, don't we? I remember somebody tried to treat, teach me trigonometry. Uh, trigonometry, that's right. Uh, when would I ever need that, for him's sake? <laughs> um, you know, we, uh, I've learned, you know, I've learned things about Renaissance art. You know, I know a smattering of things about poetry. But really, the most important thing that we need to learn about is our own mind. Because everything we experience and everything we can ever experience is mediated through the mind. Um, it's, it's, when, when you think about it, our, everything we human beings can experience, everything that you could possibly experience is mediated through your mind. So the health of your mind, the fitness of your mind, is going to play by far the largest role in your life. Uh, just the health of your mind. Um, you can be living in this beautiful city, Stockholm, you can be going off into the beautiful uh, landscape of northern Sweden, indeed southern Sweden, if you ever haven't been there. Um, you can uh, be going to these wonderful cafes around and having marvellous raw cakes we were having. And you can still be very unhappy, you can still be in a mess, can't you? Us in the West are living an incredibly a so-called West, anyway, are living an incredibly privileged life, an unbelievably privileged life. Really, we should all be just dancing on the sand, really. We should be waking up every morning uh, completely happy, because our lives, by comparison with most people, in most times of history, is unbelievably fortunate. Uh, but, because of the nature of our mind, we suffer. Um, and it's not just that we suffer, some suffering, of course, is inevitable. Uh, we cause ourselves suffering. That's really the first insight we need if we look at Buddhism as started from our mind. It's not so much that we suffer, but that we are causing our own suffering. Yeah. Um, the Buddha himself talked about two darts. He said that human beings are struck with the dart of suffering, so you get ill, a loved one leaves you, um, I don't know, all sorts of difficult things arise. Um, and, uh, well, that causes suffering. There's no way around that. Suffering is, that kind of suffering is just part of life. You can't have life without suffering. Uh, as soon as you enter this life, you enter this life with suffering. Um, but what we often do is we compound that suffering by shooting ourselves with another dart, which is to do with our reaction to that suffering. Most of our suffering, most of our human suffering, is actually to do with our reaction to suffering, our reaction to life. So our instinct with pleasure, for instance, is to try and repeat it, and as soon as we re try to repeat a pleasure, we get less of it. As soon as we try and squeeze pleasure out of our experience, what we end up with is pain. Yeah. Uh, so our instinct around pleasure is actually counterproductive, isn't it? As soon as we want more of it, we're no longer attending to the pleasure we're actually having. Uh, we vitiate our pleasures by wanting more of them. So I often talk about my famous cheese sandwich moment. Um, I can't think of a Swedish equivalent of a cheese sandwich, but never mind. Um, I'm sure you... Sir? There you go, yeah, a cinnamon bun, yeah, which I've grown very fond of. Um, 
But I remember I was coming back from a uh, teaching, I was going off to a retreat, we stopped at this very ordinary service station. The, the food in England is nowhere near as good as the food in Sweden. And we had this white, I had a white bread cheese sandwich. Um, and it was fantastic. You know that sometimes you have a cheese sandwich, you think, that is fantastic. That is just like the best ever cheese sandwich. <laughs> Somehow all the conditions are right, you're hungry enough, the cheese, it's just like, you just can't believe how good a cheese sandwich could be. And you know, I, I ate the first half, and then before, as I got to enjoying it, as soon as I ate the first half, I thought, I want another one. As soon as I think I want another one, I'm no longer attending to the sandwich I'm actually eating. Because as soon as you even have that thought, your mind starts to focus on the future. The pleasure is actually in the present, and you're missing it. Yeah? So what that makes you do is you start to eat quicker, don't you? Because you want another one. So without quite realizing, you start to eat quicker because you think, I'm going to have another cheese sandwich. So you then eat quicker. When you eat quicker, you get even less pleasure. Uh, and then, of course, you, the, the, you order the new cheese sandwich. And the next cheese sandwich comes, and it's nowhere near as good, is it? Already you're not hungry anymore. You've rather overdone the cheese sandwich as it is. You've now got zilch, zilch pleasure. Is zilch... <laughs> <laughs> no pleasure, yeah. Um, they say, for instance, when you eat a piece of chocolate, the first bite of chocolate is very pleasurable, but your neurons get very, very get accustomed to uh, the sensation very quickly. So the part of the reason why that first square of chocolate is so nice is because um, it sets your neurons off. They think, <gasps> new experience. You taste it. Very, very quickly, then your body gets used to that. The second square of chocolate, apparently, statistically, is half as pleasurable as the first. Um, and then by the time you get to the third and the fourth, you hardly taste it at all. Yeah. So this is built into our very existence. Our instinct with pleasure is to repeat it. As soon as we do that, we vitiate it. As soon as we do that, we have less pleasure. On the contrary, our instinct with pain is to push it away is to try and get rid of it, um, even urgently get rid of it, and that includes if we find other people painful. Of course, that's really where it really bites, isn't it? It's, it's not to do with finding, I don't know, the atmosphere incongenial, it's to do with finding other people painful, and we try and push it away. Yeah? Um, and usually we make things worse. So, we have discomfort, whether it's physical, mental, emotional, to do with our relationships with others, and we try to push that away, and that makes it worse. So the Buddha would be saying to us about our mind, do you see this? Do you see what you do to make your, to create suffering? When you have pleasure, you want to repeat it, and then you get less pleasure. When you have pain, you try and push it away, and you get more pain. So your instinct isn't working, you need to train your mind. So that's what the Buddha is saying to us now. You need to train your mind. Um, and if you don't do that, you will have less pleasure and cause yourself more pain. You will also, meet, you also act in such a way as to uh, bring less pleasure to other people, and you'll act in such a way to bring pain to other people. Yeah? Um, and without working on your mind, you will necessarily do that because of your instincts of your mind. Yeah? Um, 
So that's one place where Buddhism begins. The second place where Buddhism begins is with the Buddha himself. Um, it's really important to remember this. So, when you come in to do a meditation, the Buddhism begins with you now and your mind. And how are you going to not shoot yourself with a second dart? So when you sit down to meditate just now, as we just have, can you feel the discomfort in your body without tensing around it, without getting into thought around it, oh, when will this end, oh, I don't like this, da da da. How will you feel emotional discomfort without reacting to it, yeah? How will you experience pleasure in the body or in the mind without grasping after it? So that's why for us it starts with our earth and our mind. And that's why when you come to a tree right in the center, probably the first thing you'll have done is meditate. Because that confronts you with your mind. Uh, that's what Buddhism does, is it confronts you with your mind. If you don't want to be confronted with your mind, don't come. <laughs> Go and see a film. Yeah? Um, they, you know, go and see Legally Blonde 2. Uh, <laughs> that will not confront you with your mind. Yeah? Um, it's perfectly genial, it's perfectly pleasant, but it's not going to confront you with your mind. So if you don't want to be confronted with your mind, that's my recommendation. Legally Blonde 2. <laughs> um, I've completely distracted myself. <laughs> I've just gone right off into Legally Blonde 2. I haven't seen it yet. Um, I did like Legally Blonde 1, I must admit. Um, uh, but then Buddhism begins with the Buddha. Um, and it's sort of easy to say that, isn't it? But we've no idea what that means. Um, we've no idea what that means. We've got this figure on the shrine. We've got this word Buddha. No idea what it means. Um, it's amazing how us human beings can use words and actually think we know what we're talking about. But we really don't have any idea who the Buddha is. So even though I say it starts with the Buddha, we don't know what that means. Actually, when you come to think of it, when I say it starts with our mind, we don't know what that means either, do we? We've no idea who we are. Not really. We think we know, but um, the more you practice the Dharma, the more you're a mystery to yourself. Um, we do not know about the human mind. Even science, with its great um, um, progress, its great technology, hasn't really helped us with that issue. The big problem in, sci in science is how does a lump of grey matter, how does a piece of matter, our brain, create all this? How do you get this experience from a piece of matter? Because matter is supposed to be dead. How is this happening. It's the big problem. We've no idea how we're doing this. No idea. We're actually a mystery to ourselves. So actually, even though we think, okay, well, I know where I'm starting with my mind, we don't really even know that. We don't know how much, for instance, we're capable of. I've been really struck by this. Uh, when I was a child, I will get to my point eventually. Uh, when I was a child, um, I've got three older brothers and a younger sister, and every Christmas, we have a post in our house, uh, my parents' house, and we used to measure, be measured every Christmas. Did you have that? You know, your mother or your father would write a plastic line across the wall or a post, and then they'd write your name and the date. It was terribly exciting, wasn't it? Do you remember? Can you remember? You end up, ah, you look, I've grown that much, you know. And everyone would get, your mother would be very pleased, look how much you've grown. Uh, very, very exciting moment, 
yes, yes, look at me, I'm nearly an adult. Um, um, but you can, there's no way of doing that with our mind. I, I find this very interesting that you've, we've no idea what we are. So we, we've no idea what, what growth means for us. Somebody was asking me recently, why does Buddhism, why is Buddhism so slow and so ineffectual? In other words, why doesn't it, um, why, why can't you get enlightened easily, quickly? You know, why is it so slow and so ineffectual? I, I, you, could, you could say, well, who are you talking about? But anyway, um, <laughs> in whom do you mean? Um, anyway, we'll brush that aside. Um, and I was saying that one of the reasons underneath that question is that we don't know what we are. So we don't know if it is slow or ineffectual. We don't know really what we're working with. Therefore, we don't really know what, how much progress we can expect of ourselves. Do you see what I mean? Um, Bhante Sankarachita, the figure here in the shrine, he said, you measure the spiritual life in inches, not in miles. So, if we only knew what we were, we could kind of measure ourselves on the wall of the shrine room and see how much we've grown, and perhaps we'd be very pleased with that, we don't know. But we don't know who we are. Um, we often think we do, but we really don't, do we? If we actually pause long enough, we don't know. One of the ways of experiencing this, if you go off on a solitary retreat, especially if your body's just come back from one, especially for a long solitary retreat, you really start to realize that who you are is just a sort of network of thoughts, assumptions, stories, uh, interactions, which keep you in a kind of net. And when you're on your own for a long time, that net, net starts to fray, so that you don't really know who you are. You just feel more and more like you're, you just don't know what's happening. Um, so let's just be clear about that. Even though it starts with our mind, we don't know what that is. Yeah. It's only sort of an assumption that we do, and it's not true. But if that's true of our mind, it's doubly true, trebly true, quadruply true of the Buddha. We don't know who the Buddha is. So let's just see if we can get a bit closer to that. So, Buddha, as you know, is a title. It's sometimes translated as the awakened one, which I think sounds a bit dreary. It actually, it actually just means awake. That's what it means. It's an, it's an emphatic awake. Yeah? So, you're, when we're talking about the Buddha, we're talking about someone who is awake. And of course, that metaphor is implying that we're asleep. Yeah? It's actually fairly rude, if you think about it. It's like, he was saying, and now all of you people who are asleep, I'm going to talk, you know, um, please don't snore. You know what I mean? That, that is what it's saying. The title is saying, you're asleep, I'm awake. Yeah? Um, and it, in, it, in a way, the name should have that kind of electricity to it, a sort of, um, a sort of confrontation, even in the name. Uh, that's why I think the awakened one sounds rather sort of far away, but awake, he's just awake. Um, he is the one who has awoken to life. Yeah? Um, he does, as it were, know his mind, or at least he knows he doesn't know. Um, so he's awake, and um, we're not. So his relationship to us is a strange one, isn't it? It's the relationship of somebody wide awake trying to communicate to somebody who is asleep. Um, so you could imagine, couldn't you, that Buddhism needs to shake you a bit. Um, 
if Buddhism doesn't shake you a bit, you're probably not yet coming into contact with it. Um, Bantley once said that friendship is more like a cold bath than a warm shower. <laughs> or the other way around. Anyway, cold rather than warm. I can't remember which one you put, shower or bath. But anyway, uh, it needs to... Genuine Buddhist life is, needs to shake you a bit. It should uh, provoke you. It should try to wake you up. You should have this experience, at least at times, of being woken up. Um, sometimes at my best, particularly when I'm studying or sometimes even when I'm talking like this or when I'm writing, I feel my mind waking up. Do you ever have that where you suddenly can feel your mind kind of wakening up and blossoming? Like your mind is suddenly interested in, in real things. And you feel this lovely awakening of the mind. Um, sometimes I think this awakening of the heart is too emphasized. There's also an awakening of the mind, where suddenly you see things more clearly. Suddenly you, you're cognizant of your real situation. You feel like you're literally waking up. That you'd been in a kind of fog, a kind of dream. Uh, and that suddenly you're being woken up. This is why... Uh, Sometimes traumatic experience is what, in a certain sense, we need. We need something to wake us up, to wake us up out of this, out of this dream of, of me, if you mean. Out of this, even in a way, out of this dream of knowing. We're so sure about things, we're so, so convinced we know things, we so think we're in charge of things. And very often it's only trauma that can shake you out of that. Um, so the Buddha is awake and we're asleep, that's the metaphor of the Buddha. Um, so he's trying to talk to somebody who's asleep. Now he's not going to shout, because <laughs> that's not going to work. Um, one lovely Zen image of it is that the Buddha is like a toad that jumps into a well where there's a well-dwelling toad. And uh, he falls into this, into this well, into the bottom, and then, then he meets this other well, this other toad, who's been living in the bottom of this well all the time. And this toad that's just fallen, jumped in, it just sort of would say, uh, there's like a really big world out there. <laughs> like this is kind of really small in here. And it's like dark and like really, really tall. And you see that circle at the top. That out there is a whole world. And, and of course the well-dwelling toad would just say, no, they're ridiculous. I've got this huge world, look at it, fantastic. And he hops from one side of the well to another. And he says, look at my God, it's round, it's always there, glimmering and changing. That's my God, it's always there. Um, and you can imagine this toad just thinking, no, it's a hole. You're living in a hole. Uh, it's a hole. It's a real hole. It's in, um, but you can see his problem. For the, for the well-dwelling toad, which just sort of thinks, what are you talking about? It's, this is great, it's fine, it's fantastic. Look, I can, I'm the king of all that I survey. You know, they, I'm really important here, you know, the big toad. Um, I get to jump around in here, it's like really good. You, know. um, you see, that is the Buddha's relationship to us. He's dropped into our life, and he's basically saying, look folks, you're living in a hole. Uh, there's much more. And, and so, as so often is the case, I'm finding more and more, these stories touch to the heart of Buddhism better than the theories in many ways. That's just how it's like. He's in touch with something incomparably bigger. 
unimaginably bigger. And he's in this situation where he's having to try and convince us that what we're in touch with is small. It really is small. And that, hey, look, never mind about how, you know, making your well more and more comfortable, uh, you know, going and get some IKEA furniture, um, <laughs> around, you know, making like, a really nice well, you know. Um, he would just think that's just absurd. He just wants to say, you are living in a hole, we need to get out, you know. I'm in touch with something much bigger, yeah. Um, so that's what he's, that, that is his relationship to us, do you see what I mean? Um, and what's, what's difficult, of course, is how does he talk about that? Because we well-dwelling toads have never seen it. So if he talks about mountains, isn't it? we've no idea what mountains are. We've never seen them. If he talks about streams and rivers and clouds and, you know, giraffe or whatever he sees out there, we've never seen any of that. So we don't have any words. So the words don't mean anything. So do you see how he's forced to think, okay, what have you experienced? And can I find an analogy with that? You see what I mean? So it's, it's very like the situation that we could imagine where we've, here in Sweden, you've had this, you have this wonderful snow. The last time I came here, everything was in snow. It's fantastic. Uh, at least I like it. You might not be so keen, but <laughs> um, it was really, very beautiful. But how would you uh, describe snow to somebody who'd never seen snow? So it's no use. You, know, you can't just say snow, because it doesn't mean anything. So you have to think, well, what have you experienced? So you might say, well, it's a bit like the inside of a freezer. You know, those freezer cabinets. You say, snow is a bit like that. Or if you're in India, you might say, it's like Shrikand, it's a kind of sweet, like a flaky sweet. It's like that's falling from the sky. Or you might say, it's like dandruff. Do you have dandruff in? <laughs> um, it's like great big flakes of dandruff. Yeah? And you can, you can see the person thinking, great big flakes of dandruff. And you, can think, you feel like saying, well, I mean, it's not really like that. <laughs> you constantly have to correct it. So they think it's this awful dandruff experience. You think, no, it's actually rather beautiful. Uh, you know, you, you keep on having to change the metaphor, wouldn't you? And you see that that is what Buddhism is. Buddhism is an attempt to describe to us experiences that we haven't had. And to say, okay, it's a bit like the inside of a freezer. But if we don't if we don't apply, if we don't approach it imaginatively, you know, we'll think, oh, that somehow it's like freezer boxes falling from the sky. You know what I mean? Um, you see how wrong we're bound to get it. Uh, if we grasp Buddhism in a literal way, the Buddha's just saying, well, don't, don't worry too much about the metaphors, the stories, the teachings even. Just try and get what I'm trying to suggest. You ha and, you, and to do that, you have to have a kind of mind. Yeah? So there's, we've got this basic problem, you see, straight away. We've got me and myself and my mind, and that's where Buddhism starts. But hey folks, we don't know what we are. We don't know what we are psychologically, we don't, certainly don't know what we are spiritually. Um, we've no real knowledge, very often, of our potential, because our potential is to be a Buddha. Um, we're kind of uh, closed from that potential. Um, I've been very struck by the, the, the White Lotus Sutra where the children are in the burning house. I don't know how many people know the story, but the Buddha is imagined as the elder outside, trying to call children out of a house that has just set in on fire. Um, and of course, they don't. They're just playing their games, and uh, they don't realise the house is on fire. 
uh, the elder does and tries to call them out. And he knows he can't go in and get them. He has to somehow find a way of bringing them out. Which is, again, the Buddha's relationship to us. He can't come in and do anything. He can't, he's not a saviour. Um, he can't save you. Um, the Buddha can only point the way. The, only, the Buddha can only call you. But what's interesting about that little story is not only are we children in that story, we're the Buddha's children. Uh, in the story, it's his children. He's not just calling children, he's calling his own children. And the metaphor there is that we're intimately connected with the Buddha. Uh, we might be playing our games in a burning house, but we're actually our father is the Buddha. Do you see what I mean? So what, we're also, what that metaphor is also showing you is we're connected to the Buddha himself. Um, if we did but know it, but we don't realize, we're too busy with our games, status games, psychological games, interpersonal games, uh, I'm an important person games. We're too absorbed in those kind of games to realize that we're the Buddha's children. Yeah. So you have on this one side our mind that we don't know, that we don't understand, and you have on the other side a Buddha who we don't know and don't understand. Um, who is the, the, the toad that's dropped into the well and is trying to tell us of a world we can't imagine. Yeah. So to, to bridge that gap, there are only three ways in which you can bridge that gap. Uh, three great methods to bridge that gap. And Buddhism, hey, it's not too bothered which method you choose, although one is primary, I think. But there are three great metaphors. Um, because what you've got is me, and you've got a Buddha. How do I... What happens? How do I resolve that gap? Yeah? So I resolve that gap either by developing towards the Buddha. Um, and this is the primary metaphor that the Buddha himself used. The most, probably the most common metaphor in Pali is that the Buddhism is a path. It's a path from where you are to Buddhahood. Um, so this is a, the metaphor or the myth of self-development. Uh, Bhante Sangharachita recently said that this is Buddhism. There isn't another kind of Buddhism. That you need to develop yourself from where you are now towards a Buddha. Every little baby step you take, every time you're kind, every time you're honest, every time you admit to being wrong, every time you're courageous, you're taking a tiny baby step yeah, towards the Buddha. Every time you turn up to meditate rather than just watch another thing on YouTube or uh, just get more and more absorbed in your emails, every time you get a tiny bit of awareness in your life, you're moving towards the Buddha. Yeah? So that's the myth or the metaphor of self-development. Uh, we traverse that gap, we close that gap by changing ourselves to become more like the Buddha. And we do that through meditation, we do that through ethics, we do that through generosity. We do that, we need to do that in every aspect of our life. The second way of resolving that gap is you discover the Buddha within you. Um, you discover the Buddha, do you see what I mean? So this is the metaphor or the myth of self-discovery. So instead of thinking that spiritual life is a path from me to the Buddha, what I do is I discover 
my relationship to the Buddha. That, I, that, that the Buddha is my father, going back to the White Lotus Sutra. Do you see how that metaphor is actually buried within that story, isn't it? That actually, if you did but know it, your Buddha, the Buddha is your father, and he's calling you, and all you need to do is run out to him. That's all you need to do, yeah? So, that's the myth of self-discovery. You discover within yourself your own potential for Buddhahood. Yeah? Um, so do you see how that's another way of closing that gap between you and the Buddha? Is that you discover that you have within you the potential to be a Buddha. I mean, this sounds much easier than it is. It's, it's probably at the moment the most popular myth, but probably the most uh, dangerous one in a sense. Um, the one you need to be most careful with. Because we're like an acorn, and uh, we're trying to imagine being an oak tree. Now, if you, if you talk to an acorn, if you ever could have a conversation, you say, I'll tell you what, guess what, guess what, guess what, one day, if you put yourself in the right conditions, you get to be that, <laughs> you know, this humongous tree. You know, an acorn would just say, no way, no way, that's just not me, I can't possibly be like that. So we usually think that um, discovering the Buddha just means becoming a shinier, bigger acorn. A kind of super acorn, a big, you know, a kind of spiritual acorn. You know what I mean? A kind of really shiny, glossy, big. You know. Usually, if you if you take up this metaphor, you can't help but think it's just more of you, even more of you. This dreadful spiritual you. Um, you cannot imagine the miracle of a oak tree. Yeah. Um, but you see how that is a potential metaphor, that we discover the Buddha within ourselves. And then the third kind of, um, the third great way we traverse that path is we surrender to the Buddha. Um, this is a myth of self-surrender. Yeah? So instead of moving towards the Buddha in the myth of self-development, instead of discovering the Buddha within your own experience, you surrender to the Buddha. Uh, you let the Buddha, as it were, take you over. Uh, you surrender to him. Yeah. This is a myth of self-surrender. Self and you see that in this myth, again, the gap between you and the Buddha is resolved. You die to yourself, and you let the Buddha, and you surrender entirely to the Buddha. So these are the three great ways in which we can make spiritual progress. You can um, progress the, the, the myth of self-development, the myth of self-discovery, or the myth of self-surrender. The primary myth of Buddhism is the myth of self-development. Uh, um, but the other two myths are there, I think, as correctives to that primary myth. It's probably best to think that in our spiritual life we need all of those three myths present. We need to be moving towards the Buddha, we need to be discovering the Buddha, and we need to be surrendering to the Buddha. Surrendering to the Buddha in things like ritual, in meditation, um, surrendering to uh, his influence, and perhaps even surrendering, being spiritually receptive to those people who've got much more experience of the Buddha than we have. Um, Sabuti gave an interesting sort of hint about this, which is 
I think quite interesting, I've never had time to think about it, but you could think of these three myths as being exemplified in modernism, pre-modernism and post-modernism. <laughs> Sounds expensive. Um, so the myth of self-development is a kind of, is, is, a, is a modernist idea, isn't it? Um, that you can develop, you can um, progress, yeah? You can make progress. That has been the great myth of the 20th century, is the myth of progress. That, that myth is largely breaking down and creating a lot, even more nihilism than there was before. But that has been our, one of our primary myths. It's still there in science, isn't it? Although it, science is now is an interesting place because for the first time, science is telling us things we don't want to hear. I think it's very interesting about science. Until now, science has been saying, jam tomorrow. It's been saying, guess what, folks? In the future, you'll be able to do these lovely things. So I remember when in England, we used to have this program called Tomorrow's World. Does anyone have a problem? Anyway, it's called Tomorrow's World, and it was about science. It was about what was wonderful things were going to be happening in the future. And I remember one of them where it talked about you'll be able to phone from like a field. So there's this guy walking around on Tomorrow's World in the 70s, carrying a great big briefcase with a phone and saying, look, you know, you'll be able to like phone your mom from here. And I, I remember thinking, oh my God, fantastic, you know, incredible, like a miracle. I'd be able to be in a field and like phone somebody. You know what I mean? Uh, so there we are, we've achieved that. You know, and that's what science has been doing for a long time, hasn't it? It's been saying, tell you what, these, these rooms are cold, so how about we invent central heating? Tell you what, da -da, you know, it's gone on and on and on doing that. Suddenly it's having to say, tell you what, if we carry on like this, we're going to destroy the planet. Uh, it's never had to do that before. It's usually religion that's had to do that. It's always the role of religion to say, actually, I'm not so sure this is a good idea. You need not to do these things. You need to do these things that you don't want to do, and you need to stop doing these things that you do want to do. That sounds very like religion, doesn't it? But for the first time, I think, in history, science is having to say, you need to stop doing these things you want to do, drive lots of cars, da 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 da, -da uh, have so many children, da da da, -da um, not be vegetarian, da da da. You need to do all these, stop doing these things that you want to do, and you need to start doing these things that you don't want to do. You need to be a vegetarian, you need to live communally, you need to um, stop uh, travelling, and so on. Um, you need to drastically change your life. Until now, it's been religion that's done that. And this is one of the reasons, suddenly people are less keen on science. It means it's very interesting that science has now got to the point of being a prophet that we don't want to listen to. Um, it's a new moment, I think, in, in history. Um, anyway, why do I say that? Um, Modernism. Ah, thank you. I'm glad that somebody... Uh, you're on the retreat, so people are helping me stay, stay with my point. Uh, I got horribly lost on the retreat. Um, so you can see that the myth of self-development, the, the myth of progress, is a myth of modernism. Yeah? The myth of self-surrender is a pre-modernist idea, isn't it? Um, So-called traditional societies are... That is the basic content, the, uh, the basic assumption about your attitude to the ideal is you surrender to it. In theistic religions, you surrender to it. Um, the basic assumption is that you need to propitiate the gods. You need to do something to surrender to the will of the gods. You need to ask them 
not to behave badly. You know what I mean? So it's a pre-modernist idea, you could say. And the myth of self-discovery is quite clearly a post-modernist idea. That it's not to do with progress, it's not to do with a movement. Like movements, interestingly, are modernist things, aren't they? You don't get art movements anymore. Nobody would admit to being part of an art movement now. Uh, it would be a, a mark against you. Um, it's interesting that this is a movement, you see? So it sounds very modernist. But a postmodernist idea is that I'm a separate, uh, unique individual and I need to discover it within myself. And that's one, one of the reasons I think it's dangerous, because it suits us too well. Uh, it's too, it fits to a modern, western, isolated, um, rather self-absorbed uh, personality, if you mean. It, it's sort of making Buddhism fit my life rather than surrendering my life to the Dharma. Do you see what I mean? That, that's why I think self-discovery has become very popular because it horribly fits our Western mindset, which is a me mindset and is a mindset um, dominated by commodity. So we can't help thinking of spiritual life as another commodity to add on to me. And when we have commod commodities, we don't think of having to change anything. We just think we can buy things and that will embellish our life. Yeah? That we can just in incorporate them into our life. So it's probably better to think that you need all those three metaphors going in your spiritual life. To have all those three metaphors going in your spiritual life, you need four factors in your life. Yeah? Um, if you're serious about working with your mind, if you're serious about this issue of your mind, which must be the issue of your life, whether you like it or not, is the shape of your mind, then you will need to do these four things. Yeah? So first of all, you need an assiduous Dharma practice. Um, you need to, I need to, we all need to, if we're serious about doing this thing, we need an assiduous Dharma practice. By which I mean things like a regular meditation practice, a, a thoroughgoing ethical practice, including things like confession, uh, apology, uh, forgiveness, um, uh, and so on. I, but I also include things like the positive, like a real practice of generosity and a real engagement with friendship. Yeah. Um, uh, you need uh, to be reflecting on the nature of reality. I need to be reflecting on the nature of reality. That's what we're trying to do just now. Uh, we need to be doing that a heck of a lot of the time. Yeah. We need an assiduous Dharma practice, um, day in, day out. It's not, what, what some people tend to do is they get very excited at the start, like the, f the first days of a diet, where you think, I'm going to do really well, and then it gradually peters off. What you need is a Dharma practice that you can continue for 10, 20, 30, 40 years. Yeah? Recently I was talking to a young guy who's involved at the Buddhist Centre in London, and uh, he's having some very deep experiences, or seems to be, but they're really destabilizing, and I'm saying, all I want to say to him is, look, you cannot continue like this, it needs, you need to be I need to be able to talk to you in 20 years' time about how your Dharma practice is going. You can't do it in this narrow but deep kind of way. Yeah. Um, the other danger, of course, is just sort of not doing it very much at all. We just don't have an assiduous Dharma practice, we just sort of have a sort of idea of one. So that's the first thing we need, an assiduous Dharma practice. 
The second thing we need is a lifestyle that supports that practice. Um, I'm afraid one can't get round the problem of lifestyle. Again, we can, you can see that one of the reasons this, this gets downplayed in contemporary Buddhism, particularly actually in te- contemporary American Buddhism, is because it's rather inconvenient. We want our Western lifestyle pretty much as we've got it, with our flat and our dog and our iPad and our and our partner. And we want pretty much the Western packet, don't we? But we'd like a different mind, uh, please. Uh, one that actually enjoyed the, the, the Western packet, if it's in package. Um, one that made the most of it. So, uh, we can't help but do that. I like that myself. Uh, we all are. Uh, we want our cake and eat it, as they say in England. Um, but you see how that you can't do that, not really. We do need to look at our lifestyle, because our lifestyle either supports our assiduous Dharma practice, which is our assiduous practice of life, folks. It's not some weird Buddhist Eastern thing. It's an assiduous uh, turning towards the real matters of our life, rather than turning towards the superficial, the trivial, the uh, come, you know, come and go, um, which we're also given to. I speak for myself as well, so I'm not haranguing you. Um, but you see how, if we want to seriously turn our mind to our life, we need a lifestyle that allows us to do that, that allows us to go on retreat, that allows us to meditate, that allows us to have time with friends, real time with friends, that allows us to um, really have enough time to focus on the facts of life. Um, we can't do that if we're working absurdly long hours at work in a kind of um, you know, um, awful long hours at work. We can't do that if we're burdened by terrible financial worries. But and also we can't do that if we're, we've, we've got such a life that we have to uh, support. We need a very high income just to keep our flat and everything going just to keep staying still. Um, if you're not careful, you end up in the trap of income, don't you? To have this kind of life, this Western-style flat in Stockholm where you get to go to the coffee bar in the morning, cha, cha, cha. You know, to have that life means you have to work all this time. Yeah? Um, you, 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 we can't really do that. Um, we can't do that if we're stuck in romantic relationships that aren't helpful, that aren't, aren't letting each other be free to practice the Dharma. Um, we need to look at our lifestyle. We need a lifestyle that supports us in our assiduous Dharma practice. Otherwise, what happens is as you go on, your lifestyle just becomes a kind of, um, a kind of net of me. You end up accruing more and more things that you identify with and uh, increases your weight of self, if you just mean. Um, for me, my little cartoon of this is when you go out and buy those bottles of olive oil with little bits of stick in them. You know, the ones, little sticky, little berry, sticky things. It's when you've got to that kind of, you end up with just more and more consumer goods. Uh, you end up with one of those little cappuccino slothers. You end up preoccupied with trying to make samsara more and more comfortable. Uh, very, very easy to do, even if you, you hardly even notice it, like this toad in the well, trying to make the well more and more comfortable. We all do it, I do it, but... The Buddha is saying, just see, really, that isn't the point, folks. Uh, you'll never get anywhere like that. You'll never get outside like that. You need some of that, but you need enough time, energy, 
emotional commitment to friendship, to meditation, to study, to rituals, to retreat, to all of those thoroughly going spiritual practices. Without that, we, we can't expect to make progress. We just can't. Um, but we need even more than that. Sorry, <laughs> Sorry to burden you. Um, <laughs> We need, uh, and I haven't got anywhere near death and transformation, but never mind. Uh, <laughs> things were turned right off from that. Um, I just did that on the retreat. So um, We need, as well as a um, assiduous Dharma practice, as well as a lifestyle that supports that practice, we need uh, to serve the Dharma. Um, this is uh, difficult to talk about, what, one, I'm, I'm wanting to talk about it because I'm, I'm going to try and write about it in my book soon. <laughs> and sometimes I, I need to rehearse my thoughts out loud. Um, I know how to talk about it in one way and how Sabuti talks about it, but I don't know how I would want to talk about it. One of the way I've been thinking about it is that we need, if we're going to live well, we need to serve a vision that goes beyond us, don't we? Um, if we don't serve a vision that goes beyond us, do you see how because of the weight of egotism, we'll end up serving ourselves more and more. Just by standing still, we'll end up going backwards. You see what I mean? Just, it's not our fault, it's not that we're bad, it's just that egotism, self-clinging, is so strong that it'll just gradually take us in that, in that direction on its own accord, without us really noticing. The, we have, the only way to sort of prevent that happening is to serve a vision that's bigger than us, that is, makes us willing uh, to get out of our comfort zone, that makes us willing to come here tonight rather than to watch television, to go on retreat rather than stay at home, um, to create a Buddhist center rather than just use our money to um, buy things. Yeah? Um, I, I think there is no spiritual life understood deeply without this serving the Dharma. I want to call it serving the Dharma. I think that comes to the fore very much once you're ordained, once you're committed to the Dharma. But even before then, I think you need, I need, we all need, to serve a vision that's bigger than us. Otherwise, we'll get trapped in our own smallness. Um, this is what you see in artists, don't you? You see an artist, I uh, went to see um, Hilda Aft Klimt, Il Hilma, that's right, Hilma Afklimt, whilst I've been here, uh, uh, Vidya Virabodhi taught me to see her. Very, very striking. She's quite clearly, sometimes fairly possibly, in touch with a vision that goes beyond her. Um, it's quite obvious, isn't it, when you look at the paintings, when you look at her statements. She's not, that, she's not talking about herself. She's wanting to say, tell you what, I think there's something much more than me, and I'm trying to serve that. She even talks, doesn't she? about, she says that she's just painting, and um, she felt that it was just this vision coming through her, that she wasn't doing it uh, self-consciously at all. Her, actually I'm glad I thought of her, but her, her vision was to serve something. I think it's only when we have a vision to serve something that we really flourish, if you see what I mean. Um, otherwise we'll serve ourselves and our self, as we know it now, is always rather small. But as soon as she tries to serve this great vision, which, you know, she obviously go, went through lots of different phases where she's interested in theosophy and, and so on, spiritualism, the occult. It was very popular in that time. 
but she was onto something. She was trying to serve something. There's actually one of the Buddha. It wasn't in the show, but I saw in a book. There's one of the just a black and white face. It's just two lines in a black black and white circle, which is a Buddha, which I thought was beautiful actually. Um, she's onto something. She's trying to serve a bigger vision. Out of that serving comes paintings that were far before their time, really. Yeah? Um, so do you see how? We need to have that kind of service of a larger vision. Otherwise, how can we make progress? Because our serving will be a serving of ourselves, and that's not going to take us anywhere. We're already serving ourselves, you see what I mean? So, that means in, our, in, in the Tri Ratna tradition, first of all, it means uh, committing yourself to the Dharma, which in this tradition is asking for ordination, and then serving the Dharma by teaching, primarily by creating the conditions where other people can come in contact with the Dharma. And that that's more important to you than your own comfort, your own um, ease, as you mean. Like, it's been really lovely for me being here in Stockholm. I mean, I, I have a bit of a... I think I might have been Swedish in a previous life. <laughs> or I, I'm hoping I'll be Swedish in a future life, because it'll be, like, really nice. <laughs> like, I have a, like, a flat, and I can have a... <laughs> in Stockholm, uh, I could go out to the islands. Um, I have to start to myself again. Um, why was I saying that? <laughs> oh, but. but. What was I saying, but about that? <laughs> I'll come back to me in a minute. Oh, yes, that's right. <laughs> I sometimes if I just stop. So, you know, I've really liked being here, but that's what I mean. uh, I've really liked being here. And um, I could have just come for a holiday. And I would have met up with Vera Bodhi. I might have, I would have gone to the cafe, I would have gone to see the uh, Hilma von Aft Klimt. Um, but I wouldn't have been here teaching. I wouldn't have been leading the retreat. I wouldn't have been giving the seminars. And by doing those things, I feel that I've really enjoyed being here, but being here has also been what I'm trying to do with my life. Does it mean? It's what I'm trying to do back at LBC. It's what I'm trying to do with my life. Very imperfectly, um, I teach to remind myself what I'm trying to do with my life. And what that's meant is that I've been able to really enjoy being here, and I've been able to do more than that, hopefully. A little tiny bit more than that. I've been able to, hopefully practice the Dharma myself, serve the Dharma a bit, and serve the Dharma for others. Um, help create conditions in which people can come into contact with the Dharma. Um, and I do that partly because I remember the first time I came to a Buddhist center, to the London Buddhist center, as soon as I came to it, was taught the mindfulness of breathing, I thought, oh, I'm a Buddhist, that's what I am. I've always wondered what I was, there you go, I'm a Buddhist. What I've tried to do without knowing it since then in a very imperfect and limited way, I've tried to serve that, you see what I mean? I've tried to serve that so that other people have that experience. Yeah? By doing that, I've done much more than I ever could with my life. Um, so yes, we need to serve a, a greater vision, and if we are convinced of the Buddha's Dharma, we need to serve the Dharma. Um, especially served in such a way as to help create conditions in which other people can be touched by the Dharma, because that will transform their lives. I can't do very much to help other people. Um, what I can do 
is help condition, create conditions in which people can help themselves. One of the things I'm very proud of doing, uh, good heavens, look at the time, one of the things I'm very proud of doing is, I, I, although I found it actually incredibly difficult, was I was client managing a large two million pound building project at the London Buddhist Centre to create a new shrine room in the basement and improve the whole centre. Uh, I found it actually really very difficult. It was very uh, uncongenial work and very stressful at times. Uh, I had to sack four people. I've never sacked people in my life. Um, uh, it was very, very difficult. And, uh, but what it's meant is many, many more people can now come to London Buddhist Centre. Sometimes I still feel real pleasure. I come down from leading a Mitra study group in one room and in the main shrine room there are all these people coming out. But hey, from the basement there are all these people coming out. And the reason they're all coming out from the basement is because we created a basement in which they could all come out from, is what I mean. Uh, otherwise, they couldn't have even gone in there. It was very damp and it was an office. Yeah. Um, so, yes, um, we need to, I think we need, to, well, we need to serve a vision, don't we? Otherwise, how can we make progress? Uh, how can we make human progress, never mind spiritual progress? And then I said there were four things, so I've said three things. So I'll finish with my fourth thing. Um, and this is perhaps where we really get to spiritual death and transformation, is that we need intensity. Sangrach Dabanti was recently saying, the main thing we need is you need intensity. Um, you can't make spiritual progress without intensity. Now it's a bit of an odd word, intensity, because it sometimes gets emotionalized. Um, you know, that people, think that people are very intense. Often that just means people are rather indulgent. Um, what intense means is the opposite of extense. That's its meaning. So extense means broad. Intense just means focused, really. So when we say we need intensity, we need focus. We need a sustained focus on those three things, on assiduous Dharma practice, on a lifestyle that supports it, and on serving the Dharma, or serving at least a larger vision than ourselves. We need an intensity. And the primary place we get intensity is from working together, living together, cooperating together in a Sangha. That's where our view of ourselves is most likely to be challenged. Our precious self-conception, our um, habit of being me, is challenged just by the reality of other people. Just by them being there uh, and not doing what we want is, is bad enough, isn't it, frankly? Um, you know, they put things in the fridge the wrong place and all that sort of thing and uh, don't wash up. Um, uh, yes, yeah, so intensity is often experienced, mostly experienced, by working together intensively on a, um, on assiduous Dharma practice on a lifestyle and on a vision. Yeah. My, my strongest, clearest experiences of the Buddha Dharma is when I'm working intensively with friends and with a team. Um, either running a retreat or in the community I live in where I work very closely with friends that I've actually lived with for many, many, many years. Um, uh, Parambandu, an old friend of mine, we became friends when we were 25. I've lived with him for the last 25 years, I think. Um, uh, and he's 
he used to be very uh, indulgent of me, but he is not anymore. I don't know. <laughs> uh, those days are long gone. Anyway, um, that's another that's thing. But you know that friendship. I've worked into. I've, you know, I've literally been working with him much of that time, particularly more recently when he was a chair of the centre, and then we've worked together on breathing space at the centre. We've worked together. We've had to disagree. We've had to cooperate. We've had to understand the Dharma together. Um, in that way, we've created between us and around us a certain intensity. Um, without that intensity, um, it won't work. This life of ours won't work. What's, what's interesting about that intensity is if there's enough intensity in a situation, not only does it benefit the people who are working closely together, um, but it sort of um, creates a, a sort of aura around itself that people can participate in. You feel that you're entering an atmosphere of the Dharma. Uh, sometimes you can feel it really quite strongly, that there's a sort of atmosphere of Dharma practice, which has got laughter in it, it's got jokes, you need jokes, you know, I can tell you. Um, it's got um, just ordinary friendship in it, but there's got, it's got this flavour of, but we mean something. We mean to practice as assiduously as we can, we mean to create a lifestyle that supports that, and we mean to serve the Dharma. We want to have a laugh at the same time, we want to have bags of pleasure at the same time, but actually we mean those things, and we, we mean them together. So to do that, you, you, you need to die in a way. You need to let go of your uh, limited self for a larger self. Yeah. So those, that, that's what I've wanted to say this evening. I wanted to say that Buddhism starts in two places. It starts with our own mind, with the mind we actually have, not with a mind we'd like to have, not with a mind we wish we had, but the mind we actually experience when we notice it. The mind we actually have. There's no mind for meditation. Sometimes people say to me, I just can't meditate, I just don't have the right mindset, or my mind's too busy, I can't meditate. The whole point is working with that mind. Yeah? It starts with that mind and it starts with the Buddha. Uh, we don't know our mind really and we certainly don't know the Buddha. The Buddha is the one who's awake. So he's trying to talk to us who are asleep. And uh, he's like a, 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 f a toad that jumps down into a well and talk, tries to explain to another toad that there's a big world out there. Uh, the way in which we bridge the gap between ourselves and the Buddha is either, well I think all, you need the, the path of self-development, um, we need the path of self-discovery and the path of self-surrender, we need all those three aspects in our life and we need intensity. We then need assiduous Dharma practice and a lifestyle that supports it. Then if we have those things, we'll surely make progress. We hope you enjoyed this week's podcast. Please help us keep this free. Make a contribution at freebuddhistaudio.com forward slash donate. And thank you 